Alan Proctor worked in marketing for a Fortune 500 company and an NBA team. He was doing just fine, but... At a certain point, I said to myself, you know, money's great and all these material things are great, but there's got to be more to life than making money. And I don't know what it is. What was missing? And what did Alan Proctor do about that? I'm Jeff Cohen, and this is Saturday to Shabbos, Inspiring Jewish Journeys. When I was growing up, Saturday was what I called the day after Friday. But now, among the many changes I've made in becoming observant, eating kosher, moving to a Jewish community, and sending my kids to yeshiva, I now call Saturday Shabbos. On this podcast, I'll present real-life stories of people who have made their own journey to Jewish observance, the obstacles they overcame, and how the journey transformed them. Alan Proctor is a fifth-generation Bostonian who now makes his home in Muncie, New York. Alan, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. My pleasure. Really looking forward to it. So you mentioned that you're a fifth-generation Bostonian. Does that mean that your family roots trace all the way back to the 1800s? 1878 on both sides of my family tree, my mother's side and my father's side, as far as we can tell. Yep. Wow. So tell me a little bit about their Jewish education. If you think about your grandparents and your parents, what was their exposure to Judaism in Boston? (laughs) Virtually nil. Uh, I can tell you that our Jewish annual cycle included colored candles on Hanukkah. It included a 15-minute Maxwell House Passover Seder. And on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we went to Temple for about three hours. And then we went and got something to eat. So your experience is exactly the same as mine, except I also got to dip an apple in the honey. Otherwise, we started from the same point. No, you're, you were much more religious than me if you already knew about the apple and the honey. No, no, no. We were, if there's such a thing as ultra-Orthodox, we were ultra-Reform. Got it. So given that starting point, how did the experiences of your grandparents and your parents shape how you were raised? Well, they shaped me, I would say, from a very moral perspective. So they taught us very good values, you know, humanistic values, but almost nothing, virtually nothing Jewishly. So with that upbringing, though, at some point along the way, you just started to have this feeling like something was missing? Yes, absolutely. We grew up in the upper middle class suburbs of uh, Boston, and we had a very happy childhood, stable, warm, loving, thank God. It was great. And yet, I saw some of my classmates and friends, some of whose fathers were in the Forbes 400 and drove Ferraris, and they had the big house, and they had the vacation, and they had all the trappings. And yet, little by little, one would get divorced here, one would get divorced there, and they didn't seem to be so happy. So at a certain point, I said to myself, you know, money's great, and all these material things are great, But there's got to be more to life than making money. And I don't know what it is. Now, flash ahead to your senior year at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business, which, by the way, is my alma mater. So we have something else in common. So you're starting the interview process, but your thinking is also evolving at that point as well? Yes. Senior year at Wharton, a lot of companies like to come to campus and interview for 
brand managers. So I remember I was interviewing with a division of Clorox. And these two guys were sitting in business suits right opposite me. And they said, well, Mr. Proctor, your resume looks good. Your activities look good. Tell us, why do you want to work for us? And I remember thinking to myself, what's this product that they want me to market, that they want me to become the national expert and the brand manager of? And it was a product called Kitty Litter Kitty Green. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, you have got to be kidding me. There has got to be more to life than making money, but I don't know what it is. So after this infamous kitty litter interview, I understand you received something in the mail that really touched you, but what was it? So I once heard that we can see God's personal involvement in our life called Hashkacha Pratis. So it was literally two weeks later, this would be December of 1984, and it was a snowy time in Philadelphia. I was in my apartment and I received a catalog in the mail from the Nightingale Conant Corporation, world's largest producer of audio cassettes. And they had tapes on motivation and inspiration and goal setting and time management and all these kinds of things. And it said 30 day money back guarantee. So I figured, let me order one and let me see. I could always return it. And I ordered it and a couple of weeks later it shows up. And I was sitting there in my apartment, it was freezing outside, and I'm listening to this tape set called Seeds of Greatness by Dr. Dennis Waitley. And on the first tape, he said, you can do more, be more, have more, there's greatness in you. And it was just a flash, just a quick flash, like a bolt of lightning, and I knew, okay, I have to move in this direction. I don't know where, how, what, but this is the direction I'm gonna go. But at this point, all of these words of encouragement you're hearing, none of it is connecting yet to Judaism. You're thinking of it more from a motivational and personal growth perspective? Absolutely. Zero to do with Judaism. In fact, most of the cassette tapes and the seminars had nothing to do with Judaism. Okay, so take me from the kitty litter interview to the actual job that you did take and where you ended up living as your career was taking off. So I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area where I lived for 10 years. And I had a number of jobs during those 10 years. The primary one that I worked at was for a division of a Fortune 500 company, a division of McDonnell Douglas. And I became a top salesperson there. And I won trips to Hawaii and I won trips to Mexico and the Bahamas and everything. And that was all good. But uh, shortly before that, actually, I fulfilled like a lifelong dream of mine, which is to work in the NBA. I got myself a job working at the Golden State Warriors. What is your role while you're working for the team? <laughs> so I have to tell you how I got the job and that will tell you what the role was. So I walk into the office one day of the Golden State Warriors and I ask for the guy in charge of season ticket sales. And he comes out and he thought that I wanted to buy season tickets. And I said, I love basketball. I love sales. I'm great at both. And I want to work for you. And he was blown away. And he said, uh, okay, come into my office. And I walked right in and I sat down and after about 15 minutes, he said, you know what? We only ever hire from within. We only ever hire people who have strong connections to the team and the organization, but we're gonna hire you to do season ticket sales because I think you're gonna do really well. So that was my job. I sold season tickets in the off season for the Warriors and I started doing community relations speeches with a, a Hall of Famer, a guy named Nate Thurmond, 
who was the center for the Warriors. So he and I used to go give community relations speeches to promote the Warriors to the community, different communities around the Bay Area and encourage people to buy season tickets and so forth. So that was my job for the Warriors. I'm speaking with former corporate marketing guy, Alan Proctor. So Alan, what happened to season ticket sales after you pushed them? So the deal is they told us at the beginning, there were about six of us. Five people had already inside connections to the organization and I'm the outsider, but they said, Whoever sells the most season tickets stays on full-time for the rest of the year. So I decided that's going to be me. I'll outwork everybody. I'm good at it. I love basketball. I don't care what it takes. That's going to be me. And the truth is, it was me. I sold more season tickets than anybody else. So the the last day comes. Everybody knew Proctor is going to be the one they're going to keep. And the marketing manager called everybody in. And then he called me in. And I sat down with a big smile on my face, expecting him to say, well, congratulations, Proctor, you sold the most, so you're staying here full time. And he said to me, even though you sold the most, I'm letting you go. What? I said, what? You got to be kidding me. I thought the deal was whoever sells the most stays. He said, yeah, that was the deal. That is the deal. But I can tell deep down your heart's not in it. And I thought about it. And I was trying to be very honest with myself. And I said to myself, you know what? He's right. Because it was really cool to be able to go in the locker room. It was really cool to play on the the floor, the floor that the Warriors play on, the Warrior Employee Basketball Association. It was really cool to meet the players and eat at some of their homes. But at the end of the day, I was still focused on answering my big picture question, what is there more to life than making money? And once I determined that, that it wasn't working for the Golden State Warriors, I was ready to move on and keep looking. At what point does this transition to this desire to dig a little deeper into your Judaism? So 1994, I remember thinking to myself, you know, maybe there is more to Judaism that I'm aware of, but I really don't know what it is. Well, back in that day, I didn't go to the library. I went to the place where I got a lot of my information. I went to Blockbuster Video. So instead of going to the sports section or watch the Bruce Lee movies that I used to love, I went to the spirituality section. And I rented every video I could find that seemed to have anything to do with Judaism. Sodom and Gomorrah and the story of Ruth and David and Goliath and my all-time favorite, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. And I would watch Charlton Heston come down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets. And he would, and I'm sitting there with my notebook taking notes. And he'd say, thou shall love the Lord thy God. Love the Lord thy God. That sounds good. Thou shall honor thy Sabbath day. Honor the Sabbath day. That sounds good. I don't know what day it is. It's either Saturday or Sunday, but it sounds great. I found a lot of pieces of truth, wisdom, things that rang true, but nothing had it all packaged together, so to speak. So is there a step now in the process where the beginning thoughts of becoming observant are connecting to the things that you're learning? And what are some of those first baby steps you're taking at this point? Okay. October 1994, I decided, you know what? I'm going to go to a Jewish event every single night of the month of October I don't care if it's a book reading, a folk dancing thing, anything Jewish, I'm going. Towards the end of that month, I walk into a temple in Lafayette, California, and somebody says, you see that man over there? He's very successful and he's very religious. 
So I walked over. I said, excuse me, sir. Can I just ask you a question? He said, sure. I said, how'd you become so interested in Judaism? And he thought about it and he said, when I went on a UJA mission to Israel, and I thought, Israel? I never thought about going to Israel. Okay, I'll go. So you booked a ticket the, the next day? You're on a plane? I wasn't on a plane the next day, but the next day I called up UJA, United Jewish Appeal, and I said, do you have a mission going to Israel anytime soon? They said, absolutely. In December, we have one for young professionals like yourself. And I went in, in, in the latter part of December of 1994. And they took us, and they took us to a lot in Tel Aviv and Masada. And on the bus, the rabbi who was leading the tour said, anybody have any questions? So I said, yes, I heard we have these commandments. And we have more than 10. We have 600 and something. So he starts getting very uncomfortable. Well, not everybody believes that there are 600. Not everybody believes that the Torah is God-given. You know, there are different opinions and this and that. He wanted me to ask, how tall is Masada? How long did they stay up there? How did they grow the food? But all the students kept nudging me and saying, you ask such good questions. Keep asking your questions. Very interesting. One day I get off the bus and one of the tour guides pulls me aside and says, look, this is not a tour for questions like that. This is a tour. We're going to show you all these places. And at the end, we're going to ask you for a check. And if you give us a check, the Ethiopian kibbutz that we showed you yesterday can have running water. So I said, okay, that sounds like a great cause. But she said, but if you want answers to your questions, you have to go to a place called a yeshiva. And I said, what is a yeshiva? And I'm guessing that leads to you extending your time in Israel to check out this concept called the yeshiva. So take us on that journey. So I'm walking through the old city and I see a sign that says, come take a class in the basics of Judaism for an hour, for a day. It's free. Come ask your questions. It's called Asia Torah. So I said, okay, great. Thursday, January 5th, 1995, I walk into Asia Torah and I said, can I sit down? And they said, sure. I sit down three minutes into hearing Torah being taught. I said to myself, you have just found what you've been looking for for the last 10 years. And it was an overwhelming moment of clarity in my life. So I'm guessing that you ended up building a relationship with a rabbi or two. The people I hear who go there often find someone who becomes like a mentor or a guide to them. Did you build that kind of relationship while you were there? So I decided after hearing this information, okay, I'll take these classes for two weeks. If I like what I hear, I'll go back to San Francisco, I'll close things up, and I'll come back for three to six months. If I like what I hear in the three to six months, then I'll really close things up in San Francisco, sell my car, et cetera, et cetera, and I'll come back for two to five years. Back in San Francisco, I went for Shabbat to Rabbi Yehuda Ferris of the Chabad of Berkeley, California. Wonderful person, wonderful family. And I remember saying to him, Rabbi Ferris, Why do I feel so strongly that I have to get back to yeshiva to study? He said, let me ask you a question. If your body were dying and you knew it, you'd pay any amount of money to heal it, wouldn't you? And I said, of course. He said, so too, if your soul were dying, you'd pay any amount of money to heal it. You'd do anything, right? And I said, wow, that is so true. And I later heard the quote that Torah, learning Torah is the nutrition for the Jewish soul. That tiny little spark inside of me that every Jewish person has that we call a pintaliyid, it had been sparked. 
But then a few weeks later, because my parents weren't for it, they were against it. What are you doing? You went to Wharton. Why are you giving up your corporate job? How can you leave it behind and go out to, off to Israel? You're 31 years old and so forth. I had a lot of pressure against me. So I said to Rabbi Ferris, you know, Rabbi Ferris, let's be honest. If I go back to yeshiva and I become observant, if I become orthodox, by the time my children are six years old, they're going to know more than me. He said, let me tell you something. Even a blind person can give birth to a sighted one. And I thought, wow. So that really motivated me tremendously to go back. So you're getting more and more turned on. Take me inside some of those conversations you're having with your family. You mentioned with your education you had and your corporate career and all that. Well, how were those conversations going at this point in time? So at first I went back for the three to six month time frame that I spoke about. And at one point, pretty early on, my dad said to me, you know, I, I'm hearing my friends saying that this, this place, Asia Torah, this is a cult and maybe they suck kids in and I don't know and you know, so forth. So I said, dad, it's not a cult and so forth. And then I went to the rabbis afterwards and I said, listen, you guys must get this question all the time. How do you answer your parents? They said, well, have them come here. Have them see for themselves. It's a nice, great place. The people are intelligent. It's out in the open. You know, it's wonderful right across from the Western Wall. I said, there's no way my dad's coming 6,000 miles from Boston to, to, uh, to, to Israel. So I thought, well, I, if I can't bring dad to, to Israel, I have to bring Israel to dad. So I handpicked a few teachers and rabbis and I made a video and I said, Dad and family, I'd like to introduce you to Rabbi so-and-so. And they would speak and I'd ask him a few questions and he spoke intelligently and he looked nice and I showed them the facilities at Asia Torah. So dad got the video. I said, you get the video? He said, yep. And I said, what'd you think? He said, okay, at least I know now you're not in a cult. <laughs> so that, that is helping them feel a little bit better about your situation. Are they starting to get onto the bandwagon of the journey that you're on or they're just feeling like at least my son is safe and nothing dangerous is happening over there? It was more the latter because their conception, my parents' conception of Judaism was the Judaism that they grew up with or the lack thereof, you know, very basic, watered down, life is a buffet, take what you want. I mean, at my bar mitzvah, to be transparent, the rabbi never mentioned anything about keeping kosher, keeping Shabbat, and never even mentioned anything about tefillin. I didn't get tefillin at my bar mitzvah. They couldn't conceive that I could enjoy going to synagogue. I could enjoy hearing a lecture. Obviously, I kept a very close relationship with my entire family, grandparents included, but I had to swim upstream on my own. My guest today is Alan Proctor. Alan, tell me about actually taking on some of the steps of becoming observant. And where in this journey does your wife come into the picture? Ah, so at a certain point after the initial enthusiasm and motivation wears off, like this is great, these classes are great, going to people's houses for Shabbat is amazing. Then it, we get into the halacha. You can't do this on Friday night. You can't do this on Saturday. And it starts to get like, I'm going to have to make some real changes if I do this. So I used to play this game with myself called... I'm going to quit. I would say, that's it. I'm out. I'm out. I had enough. I'm not changing my life like this. I'm quitting. So I would walk to the King David Hotel about uh, four o'clock in the afternoon with my pen and pad and paper. And I'd say, okay, I'm leaving Yeshiva tomorrow. Good. I'm leaving tomorrow. That's it. I quit. Where am I going to go? Well, Boston or San Francisco, probably. Yeah, probably San Francisco. Okay. What am I going to do for work? Well, 
Maybe go back to the corporate world. Well, you already did that. You already succeeded at a high level. And you already know that that's not the answer. Well, who am I going to marry? Well, I don't know. Well, what kind of community and friends am I going to have? I, I don't really know. And I would spend about eight hours pacing the halls of the King David Hotel, drinking coffee and eating cookies. And by the time I finished that at 2 a.m. or so, I would say to myself, okay, I'm not going to quit. I'll stay a little longer. And I would stay a little longer. And I, and I kept going. My wife, you asked about my wife. I had been at Aish for about six months. And they came to me and they said, Proctor, we heard you used to be involved in these motivational seminars in San Francisco. Can you teach a seminar to a group of students who are just passing through? And the seminar topic should be, what are you living for? So I said, okay, listen, I only dive in about one time, praying one time a day in English, but I can teach that seminar. So I go around the room of about 40 people. And this person says, I want a house, I want a car, I want a good job, I want a good education, all the normal answers. And I, there's a girl in the back of the room and I get to her and she has her hand up and she stands up and I take one look at her and she's gorgeous, stunning. And, I, and she said, I want to live a life of Torah and mitzvos and connection to Hashem, connection to God. And I said to myself, for a girl like that, I'd get married today. Well, I was very far away from being ready to get married, but two years later, that's the girl I married. Wow. So where was she coming from that she ended up in the seminar? Where was she visiting? So from? she was actually, it's called a madricha. She was like a, uh, one of the group leaders of these 40 students who were checking it out. She was volunteering her time. And I didn't know she was already fully observant and so forth. So she was way above me spiritually. So I remember when, when I got a call to potentially go out with her and I asked, well, what's the girl's name you want me to go out with? They mentioned the name. I said, that, that's the girl because, of course, I made sure to get her name when, when I saw her that, right? And, and I said, oh, no, this girl is so far above my level of spirituality. It's never going to work. There's no, no possible way. So that was... July of 1995, I was really at the beginning. And I actually remember I volunteered some time at Asia Torah in, in 1996, and she was working at the same office. And I thought, oh, the girl, let me try to strike up a conversation with her. And she knew I was not ready to be married, yet I was still struggling to learn and growing. And she didn't give me the time of day. She was very nice about it, very professional about it and everything. But I was very clear, no. You got a lot of ways to go before you're ready, like good luck. But after two years of learning in, in yeshiva, that's when uh, she came to Israel for a trip and we got set up. And by that time, we were pretty much, you know, holding on the same level. And so uh, we got engaged and then we got married in Los Angeles in January of 1998 and then went back to Israel for about two and a half years where I learned in the Kolel at Ishatar before we finally moved back to, to America. We moved to this town of Muncie, New York, about 30 miles north of Manhattan. So you're in Muncie now. It's around the year 2000. What's happening for you professionally and what are you doing in terms of being involved with Jewish organizations? So at Wharton, I majored in marketing. So that was my talent and ability. And because I felt so passionately that I had to look for so many years to find Judaism, I thought, you know what? Let me keep this simple. Let me take my God-given marketing abilities and try to help expose this uh, Torah, Jewish wisdom to more people. So I worked for the Chavetz Chaim Heritage Foundation for about two and a half years. They do a lot of programs on building unity amongst the Jewish people. And then I was recruited to work for an organization called Partners in Torah, 
where you pair together a person who has a, a Jewish background with one who doesn't, and they study over the phone or in person for an hour a week. And I did that for about a year and a half, and I love those two jobs very much. Today, I work in the corporate world because it pays better, but I volunteer a lot of time to dozens of different Torah organizations to help them with their message. And so together you have three children, correct? Together we have three children, although just for full disclosure, God has plans that we can't always conceive of. Uh, 14 years ago, he decided that my wife should uh, become sick, and we tried everything we could to heal mommy, and unfortunately, 12 years ago, she passed away. So I've raised our three children by myself for the last 12 years. So I just have to make the best of it and keep a positive, happy environment, stable environment for my kids best I can. And all I know how to do, Jeff, is hug them and kiss them and love them. And each one of them, thank God, thank God, is doing very nicely and is, you know, I believe has made peace with the situation. So what's ahead for you as you think about this remarkable journey you've been on. What do you envision for yourself in the next three years, five years, 10 years? You seem like a guy who plans things out and has big goals and takes action on them. So I have to imagine there's a a vision board somewhere in your house of what's coming next. So I have my mission statement to help bring Shalom and Achdus to Klai Yisrael, peace and unity to the Jewish people. So my goal, especially now that I have a little bit more time availability, my both boys are are, are living and learning in, in Israel. And my daughter's in 11th grade, finishing 11th grade here in Muncie. I want to continue to work at the real estate services business that I'm in. But I want to do more and more to help the Jewish people and help share the, the message, the positivity, the wisdom, and give them some insight into, uh, into life. What kind of advice do you have for a person who's choosing to become observant and trying to figure out that balance between what they're feeling spiritually and that journey they want to go on, but having to also straddle both worlds and try to excel at the same time in the corporate world? I would say find yourself a mentor or mentors, and there are resources to do such a thing, and they can help guide you through that. The happiest people are those who are closest to God, and that's why the Torah teaches that the purpose of life is closeness to God. And we get close to God by learning Torah, learning his wisdom, praying, and associating with other people who are doing the same. Something tells me you're going to be one of those mentors as these people listen to all of your words of wisdom. Alan Proctor from Muncie, but a journey that took him through California and Israel. I want to thank you so much for sharing your personal journey from Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you very much for your time, Jeff. My pleasure. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our executive producer is Rabbi David Pardo. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.